If you would, grab your Bibles, please, and open to the book of Jude. If you don't know where the book of Jude is, that's fine. No big deal. Uh, Go to the very end of your Bible and go one book back. So the last book in your Bible is Revelation. The second last is Jude. It might be a page. It might be two pages uh, in your Bible. So I'll give you some time to find it. Before my family moved to the great state of Texas, uh, we lived in a ba- on a barrier island on the eastern coast of North Carolina. Our old county has a couple of famous nicknames. You might have heard the most popular one on HGTV or something called the Outer Banks or for short, OBX. But if you're a history buff, you might know it by the nickname, the Graveyard of the Atlantic. <clears throat> there are approximately 5,000 shipwrecks off the North Carolina coast. Over 2,000 of them scattered along the floor of the Atlantic Ocean just off the Outer Banks. Now, to be sure, warfare is one reason for the underwater traffic jam. However, weather plays a more significant role. A unique geological feature of the area is the prevalence of shallow, mobile sandbars called shoals. Because these shoals move with the wind, they're impossible to chart, and they make ocean traffic treacherous. Over the last several hundred years, the crews of thousands of maritime vessels have failed to safely navigate these shoals and have subsequently lost their boats and even their lives. In fact, pirates like the famous Blackbeard uh, were known for taking advantage of these sandbars, plundering ships as they ran aground close to the safety of the shore. You could get lost uh, on the internet researching the graveyard of the Atlantic. If you have some time, you may want to do that if you're off tomorrow. We'll spend the next two weeks studying the book of Jude. In this epistle, the half-brother of Jesus Christ warned first-century believers about the secret and sinister danger of false teachers that were making their way into the church. These false teachers would creep in unnoticed, the text says, and shipwreck the faith of whole families and lead whole churches astray. False prophets and false teachers are opponents of the true faith. And these spiritual terrorists have wreaked havoc in the church for millennia, and they are still wildly successful today. Jude offered this letter to help the church chart the waters, so to speak, of sound doctrine and avoid the danger of running aground on the shallow shoals of, first, of false teaching. Have you found Jude yet? Let's read together the first 16 verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the angel, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they say, all that day, I'm sorry, like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of game to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such a way, in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's hear that warning and pray to the living God. Father, we need your help. We need to understand and believe the truth of your word so that we can be equipped to avoid false teachers. Help us to know you better as a result of this sermon today. I pray, Lord, that you would come down and talk to us through your written word this morning. Give us what we don't have. Teach us what we don't know. Make us what we aren't yet. Holy Ghost, we need your help this morning. We also pray for two of our leaders. We pray, Lord, for Pastor Jake as he is resting, I hope. I pray that you would give him uh, a week of renewal coming up. I pray that as he takes a vacation, that he will come back rested and energized for the monumental task that you have set before him in leading this church. I pray that you would bless him and his family as they rest together. I pray, Lord, for Pastor Guy as he is on mission again, uh, this time in Mexico. We, we pray that you would give him boldness to proclaim the truth of your word that you would give him effectiveness in his conversations. And I pray that as a result of their work, many would come to know and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as we study your word together. Amen. The background here is 
pretty obvious. It's in the first two verses. You can take a look at it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, now, this is, uh, this is Jude, actually the half-brother of Jesus. He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ by way of humility and a brother of James. Jude was likely a leader in the Jerusalem church. And as we move relatively quickly this morning, because I got a lot to say, so hurry up and listen. Uh, the book is centered on one core command. It's in verse three. Did you see it? Contend for the faith. The word contend comes from the root word where we get our word agonize. It's to struggle. There is a struggle into which the church is called. The faith was and still is under attack and the church needs to live out her calling as keepers and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this message is going to be divided into two parts very simply for you. First, we have the contest. The contest. The contest is the church against the opponents of the gospel. We'll be looking at the first seven verses here. The church versus the opponents of the gospel. You'll see very plainly here in verse one that it is the church who is called to contend for the faith. Look at verse one. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The church, that word literally means called out ones. The church is made up of called out servants of Jesus Christ. And this text pulls no punches here. It tells us that the church is under the sovereign care of God. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what else to do for you. We've sang illustrious truths this morning, my very favorite hymn of all time, Before the Throne of God Above. Now we see that we are called, beloved by God himself, and kept by God himself. Ooh, you could cross-check that with 1 Peter chapter 1 if you wanted to, but we don't have time this morning. This called, it isn't the word that means invited. This is an effectual call that God gives to bring people into his family, adopted as sons and daughters, called to serve him. And we can take great hope from this text because it says we're beloved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? In this struggle, in this context or contest, we will be victorious. You need to go into this knowing that there is nothing to fear because we've been beloved by God and kept for God. That's good news. The church likewise has been entrusted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Look at it, verse three. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He calls that earlier, our common salvation. Listen, the church has been charged with spreading the best news of all time. I worry that we get real complacent because we forget that we have in our possession the answer to everything. We have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That solves your sin problem. That solves your funeral problem. That solves your bondage problem. This is the good news, and it was entrusted to who? The church, the called and set out ones. 
We've been given this message. We've been trusted with the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciling men to himself. Not only have we been charged with spreading this news, we've also been charged with defending the purity of this news. That's what Jude writes about here. He wanted to write to celebrate the common faith, but he felt a stirring in his spirit to write to compel us to defend or contend for the faith. We are responsible for the purity of the news. We should know this theoretically. I, I worry that we don't anymore. We should know this, that a faithful news provider gives the facts, not opinions. You wonder why no one trusts the media anymore? It's because they no longer give the facts, they only give the opinions. And notice, I didn't pick a side. I'm talking about the whole thing. Why is there a massive distrust of the media? Because they don't give us the facts. They give us the story. I'm reminded of the quote by the great philosopher and my favorite actor, Denzel Washington. <laughs> he said, if you, this is years ago, he said, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. Does that not ring true today when you turn on your television? We have to get the news right. We have to be faithful with the news. Jude was redirected by the Holy Spirit here to give a defense of, this, of the faith instead of a celebration of the faith, which was his original intent. Hear me, there is need for both types of teaching ministries, certainly. Sometimes the circumstances dictate the response that we need to give. For example, I don't know a pastor who's unfamiliar with the feeling of needing to change their sermon kind of close to the deadline because something came up or the Lord wanted him to address something in the church. That's what's happening here. That ministry is certainly um, valid. There was a very present danger within the church that caused Jude to change his plans. And here it is. It's the perversion of the gospel. The church contends against the perversion of the gospel. Look at verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Certain people were perverting the gospel by promoting sensuality. They were taking advantage of grace to condone lewd and sinful behavior. If you know much of your New Testament, you would know that Paul condemns this very thing in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Should we keep on sinning so that, may, so that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. We shouldn't turn grace into a license to live sinful lives. Rather, grace changes us to make us live holy lives. Are you with me still? Hey, look, I grew up Pentecostal. If you shout me down, I'll just go harder. I'm not going to get worried about it. That's why I love when Freddie's in the room. Come on, Freddie. I need your help today. There's a, a common and subtle version of this doctrine that I, I see all the time, and that's sort of treating the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card, so to speak. Well, I mean, I prayed a prayer, you know, when I was a kid. So I'm good. I'll just do what I want. I don't need to go to church. I mean, I'm a Christian. God knows. 
I don't need to live right. I can say what I want. I can do what I want. I mean, I prayed a prayer. That's a common, subtle, and sinister teaching. But even more sinister is something like this. Jesus abolished sin at the cross so then we can live to please the flesh. If you don't think that message exists, I'm here to tell you otherwise. I've sat in rooms and heard a preacher say, Jesus broke the curse of sin on the cross, and so our only duty is to enjoy life. That was at a wedding. And to no surprise, the pastor and the rest of his flock were rip-roaring drunk during the reception. It happens, church. Using the gospel to celebrate sin. What a perversion. And the Bible says these false teachers had and still do. And they've crept in unnoticed. It's kind of like ants. Like you see one, you're like, okay, I'll kill this one. Maybe there won't be any more. And tomorrow there's millions of ants on your counter, right? They've crept in unnoticed. Let me tell you a modern example. I, I, I really don't mind naming names, but I'm going to try to make this the only one that I named today. Uh, my wife and I, between the two of us, we have three degrees from Liberty University. And at their convocation, which is a Christian preaching event, uh, years ago they had a very famous Mormon preacher come, Glenn Beck. And he stood on the pul- on the, in the pulpit and he proclaimed, we believe the same thing. I'm here to tell you we don't. It was never addressed. It was never corrected. He just crept on in unnoticed in front of 20,000 students. That's the only time I've ever written an angry letter and I don't regret it. This should not have been surprising. God's prophets predicted false teachers centuries prior to this letter, as we see in verse 4. You can read about that in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Psalms, all through the Old Testament. But Jude here is sounding the alarm and calling on Christians to wage war for the purity of the Christian faith. It's ours to defend, church. I know I'm upsetting uh, our modern millennial sensibilities here, but you might have to step on a toe or two to defend the good news of the gospel. But let me pause and give an exhortation that I think we desperately need. We are to contend against opponents of the faith and not teammates in the faith. Let me tell you that again. We contend against opponents of the faith, those who pervert the gospel, not people with whom we just disagree a little. Other denominations within Orthodox Christianity are not the problem. You might disagree on a tertiary issue like divine sovereignty over salvation or whether all of the spiritual gifts are active or not. Or hear me, even whether women can preach. We hold specific views on those things. They're not the enemies. The enemies are those who pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't contend against our teammates. What would happen if, right now it's the NBA playoffs, what would happen if on the Phoenix Suns, I'm losing about two-thirds of you here, I know it, uh, what would happen if Chris Paul started playing defense against his own team during game one of the Western Conference Finals? 
they lose. Guys, we're losing because we're playing defense against each other. We're not playing defense against the real opponents, those who pervert the gospel into sensuality. Let me give you a great starting point for shared doctrine. It's in your bulletin. I've given you a copy because I don't have time to read it this morning. I would urge you to take it home. Take a good look at it. It's called the Nicene Creed. This statement of faith has been valid for the church for thousands of years now, since like 300 and something AD. We've agreed on this statement of faith for a very long time. That's a starting point for shared doctrine. How do you know who's a teammate? This is one good tool to use to say, oh, we believe the same gospel. Other denominations and Christians with whom we disagree are not the enemy. The enemy distorts the truth of God's word to fulfill his own sinful desires and leads others astray from the faith we've been given. The church contends against the perversion of the gospel, but hear me, it's not all negative. The church contends for Jesus who saved us from our wandering. Look at verse five. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. You might find that odd because Jesus didn't make his official arrival in the Bible until the New Testament. And we just learned in our study of Exodus that they left Egypt like a long time before that. But the Bible credits to Jesus the salvation of the Israelites. And let me tell you the truth. The Bible credits your salvation to the same source. Jesus Christ. Friends, if you don't know him, let me pause. Now's the time. You're about to hear some very, very scary warnings. Please don't go off into this dangerous doctrine. Please meet the one who saves us from our wanderings. You and I, both, all, before we knew Jesus, we were, as Sammy said earlier, dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, according to the passions of our flesh. We were all dead in sin, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what the cross does for the sinner. Jesus saves us from our wandering, from our slavery to sin and to death. He gives us a hope and a future and it changes our lives from the inside out. This is what we contend for. We contend against its opponents. We contend for Christ who saved us from our wandering. Remember the gospel. Believe the gospel. Don't reject the gospel. And the church contends for a very specific reason, not only because we've been saved, but because condemnation is coming. Look at verse five. Afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. Here Jude in verses five, six, and seven gives three examples of the punishment that awaits the ungodly. He gives three examples. The judgment of Israel in the wilderness, the expulsion of the angels who sinned, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me walk very briefly through these three, and I'll just give you some homework assignments to go read them on your own because we're not going to dive into all three stories here. 
but the judgment of Israel in the wilderness. You can find that in Numbers chapter 32. A very short distillation is in verses 10 through 13. The people grumbled and they didn't want to follow God. In fact, uh, the spies came back from the Holy Land and they said, those giants are too big. We, we can't defeat them. This is the same people who had just been delivered from slavery under Pharaoh, led by a flaming cloud of fire and smoke. They'd seen God do plagues and miracles and they'd heard from God on the mountain and now they're afraid of tall guys. And the Lord says, you know, you don't get to come in. You will die here in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb, because they believed. The next example is the expulsion of the angels who sinned. Now this one is a point of debate. I'm not sure. It might come from Genesis 6, where the corrupted angels came from heaven and had their way with the women on earth. Certainly, they were judged, destroyed in the flood in that very same chapter. It could refer to Isaiah 14, when angels rebelled against heaven, against God, and were cast down in, onto, uh, in, into hell. In either case, we see that their judgment was eternal and comprehensive. And then we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Hey, before you read that story, put on your seatbelt. That's a crazy one. The perversion of the people had gone so far that God wiped out their city with fire. Not only their city, the surrounding cities. In fact, listen to this. According to a secular philosopher named Philo of Alexandria, I want you to hear this. Smoke rose from the twin cities even in the first century AD. Thousands of years later, smoke still rose from Sodom and Gomorrah. What does that tell us about the judgment of God? It is severe. It is eternal. No one can escape save from faith in the blood of the Savior. All three examples illustrate the comprehensive judgment of God. They were eternal. All, all these subjects were separated from God. And all three show how ungodliness affects all the spheres of our life. But I, I have some news for you. Before we go even further, I'm reminded of Obadiah. It's a great one-chapter book in the Old Testament where God pronounces judgment on Edom because Edom was enemies with Israel. And it's, it's a scathing rebuke. Edom is headed toward dangerous, dangerous judgment. But there's a little verse toward the end. Ooh, it's good. But rescue can be found at Zion. Beloved, if you don't belong to Jesus, I have bad news for you. Judgment is coming. It will be severe. It will be eternal. And you will not escape. I don't care if you're a good guy. You're not good enough. There is one who drank down the judgment of God's wrath in your place. And what you need to do is believe it and receive it. And you can find rescue at Zion through the blood of our Savior. Don't wait. Don't wait. You're headed to dangerous waters. While wrath awaits the ungodly, grace awaits the repentant. So turn. Turn. 
We all agree, I hope, that the church is called to defend against enemies of the gospel. But how do we spot these enemies at the church today? Let's look, at, let's look together at the sort of scouting report that Jude gives us on our opponents in verses 8 through 16. This is the second half of the message, the opponents, ungodly false teachers. Jude, in these verses, gives us five characteristics of ungodly teachers that we contend against. Start in verse 8 with me. These people also, <clears throat> relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These are defilers. Number one, they are defilers. They're dreamers, supposing divine inspiration. I can't tell you how many just horrendous messages I've heard that begin with the Lord told me, the Lord revealed to me. I got a word from the Lord. Let me just make it plain. You're holding the word from the Lord. Brother and sister, if you belong to a faith family who doesn't preach from the written word of God, I would urge you to reconsider. That's the thing I'm so thankful for at Indian Creek. I can say that because I'm not the primary preacher. Pastor Jake faithfully exposes God's word to us every week. He doesn't stand up here and rely on his dreams and visions that no one can actually test. He preaches the word of God. These teachers practiced lust, rebellion, and irreverence. They arrogantly overestimated their power and authority. Here Jude pulls a, a story from the book of Enoch. It's not a book of the Bible, but it was a popular story at the time. This is really no different from a sermon illustration from a well-known book. If I came up here and told you a sermon illustration from Of Mice and Men, it's not part of the scripture. It's not divine. I, God didn't inspire it necessarily, but, but it can help you understand the point. I think that's what Jude is doing here with this reference. And his whole point with the story of the archangel Michael contending against the devil for the body of Moses, the whole point is that, is that the angel didn't presume to be God and neither should any preacher or teacher. They shouldn't elevate themselves to divine status. Learn from me. I know what you don't. Learn from me. I had this spectacular vision you can't test. We need to listen. We need to be discerning. Hear the word of the Lord, not the word of a good communicator. They're ruled by their flesh rather than God's word. Number two, first off, they're defilers. Number two, they are dangerous. Look at verse 11. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Three really quick Old Testament examples of people who defied God and led people astray. Here's more homework for you. Uh, you can read about Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Cain typified treachery and violence and hatred. You can read about Balaam in Numbers chapter 31. He typified greed and lust. He led Israel into sexual sin because of financial enticement by King Balak's bribe. You can read about Korah and his men in Numbers chapter 16. In their arrogance and pride, they rejected the God-ordained leadership of Moses and Aaron. And God commanded Israel to part from their company and cause the earth to split and swallow them up to their destruction. Friends, that story is a trip. The Bible gives us these three by way of warning. Woe to them. 
Woe to them. Be careful about men like this. Be careful what you see on TV. I know the channel says Christian, but it probably isn't. Beware. Beware of men who rely on their dreams and vision rather than the word of God. Beware of men who stoke their own egos. Beware of men who lead people into sin using the word of God. Beware. Be discerning. They're dangerous. Don't join with them. You may find yourself judged like these three examples. Number three, they are deceptive. Verses 12 and 13, Jude hits us hard and fast. Jude 12 and 13, he gives us six pictures of false teachers. Six pictures of false teachers. Number one, hidden reefs that wreck ships. I, I, I tried to tell you a little bit about this in the introduction. Those sandbars that move and they wreck ships uh, who don't know where they are. They're secretly destructive. Number two, selfish shepherds who only feed themselves. I actually will read from the Old Testament here. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord warns us about selfish shepherds. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And the Lord goes on to promise that he will bring his sheep back. Because there is a true shepherd in Israel. Jesus is his name. And he trusts godly and faithful leaders to be his under-shepherds over his people. These selfish shepherds who only feed themselves are deceptive. The third picture we see, waterless clouds. Now this has come into HD for me now that I've moved into Texas. I keep waiting on it to come and it just isn't happening this year. Praise be to God. I keep waiting for the faucet of rain to just turn off and not come back on until September. I've learned at least that much, right? It's probably coming. What a tease when that cloud starts to billow. And I don't know what it is about mineral wells, but we are like an apparition to the weather channel. I don't know what's going on. I see the clouds. It looks like it might rain. I've never loved rain so much in my life, taking it for granted. And then the cloud just passes right on by. What devastation. What a tease. These waterless clouds, they overpromise and underdeliver. Sow your gift of $1,000 and you'll reap a miracle. Send in your gift of $149. And we'll send you this. We'll pray for you on TV. Don't false teachers overpromise and underdeliver. We stand on the word of God. We make promises that come from the word of God. We can't underdeliver. God delivers on his promises. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't need your holy water. We have the holy word. 
Thanks, Freddie. The next one, barren fruit trees. These fruit trees are twice dead. They only produce death. They don't produce life. Waves that wash up trash in the listeners' lives. This one I can commiserate with. Uh, living on the beach for a while, they give you a warning. Don't go swimming after a storm. Don't go swimming after a storm. You might wonder why. It's because that's when you get sick. The, the storm waters wash up all the trash and the bacteria and the stuff that's been hidden. And you go swimming after a tropical storm, you're, you're likely to get sick. This is what the crashing waves of false teaching do. They stir up trash in our lives and leave us sick. The last picture of a false teacher, wandering stars, bound to darkness forever. They're just disappearing. They fade away. All these things seem good, but they offer no benefit. Beloved, your life reveals your heart. You know that, right? The way you live reveals what's inside your heart. And these false prophets have a heart only for themselves. Their heart's not for God or for his people, but for themselves. And so we see our fourth characteristic. They are doomed. 14 and 15. For about these, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I will treat you like a Sunday school class here. Is there a word you heard repeated in that verse? Four times. Ungodly. These are thoroughly ungodly men and women who are doomed. Their doom was settled in ages past and will come to fruition later. They're doomed for one reason, because they are thoroughly ungodly. And number five, they are despicable. Look at 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Question, would you like for that to be written on your tombstone? Would you like for that to be your epitaph? What a condemnation. What a verdict. Thoroughly ungodly. These men are despicable. They're despicable. You might think, Andrew, for goodness sake, you're all hot and bothered about this stuff. For goodness sake, is it really that big of a deal? It is that big of a deal. Because men have been trying to lead astray the sheep that belong to the good shepherd for millennia, and we wrestle against them. We contend against them, not our teammates, our opponents. So likely that leaves the question for you. Okay, but like, how do I know? I, mean, I, I listen to these guys and maybe some of them sound like they're saying good stuff and some of them seem, they're good talkers. All of them are good talkers. How do I know who's good? How do I know who's bad? How do I know what to avoid? And how do I know what to what to embrace. I'll just give you a quick litmus test. Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 through, 22 through 24. You might know this text as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit here. 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do the teachers that you listen to fit that criteria? You might say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know them. All the more reason to attach yourself to a local church so that you can know the shepherd who feeds you. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the desires or the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's the litmus test that we should measure teachers by. Do they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, in their teaching? I mean, just simply look at their fruit. That's what Jude is telling us to do. To identify a false teacher, you look at the fruit. I would give you a couple others. Check their teaching against the scriptures. We're told to do this. I know the Bible says, do not despise prophecies, but test them according to the word of the Lord. Hey, I invite that. And Pastor Jake invites that. All of our elders invite that. If you hear something from our pulpit that sounds weird to you or you're not real sure, we urge you to pick up your Bible and investigate. And if we're wrong, please come and tell us and we will make it right. That's the posture of a godly, correct teacher. But haven't you heard these stories of people confronting big famous celebrity pastor guy and they just kind of get their selves chewed out or worse, kicked out. People aren't accountable. They're unwilling to be called according to their error. Check their teaching against the scripture. And number three, examine their posture and their authority. Jude talks about this. We're not dreamers, we're teachers. Examine their authority. Where are they getting their stuff? If they're getting their stuff from somewhere other than the Bible, just click next and go to the next podcast. You don't have to listen to it. That's how we identify them. We look at their fruit. We check their teaching against scripture. We examine their posture and their authority. And so then what do we do when we encounter ungodly teachers? 2 Timothy 3.5 makes it very plain. Avoid such people. Like stop. Just don't listen. Stay away. My flesh wants to say more, but I believe the Spirit's constraining me not to. Okay, avoid them. And we'll see from the rest of Jude next week especially, stand up and enter the contest. Stand up and enter the contest. Your feelings matter less than truth does. Now you can speak the truth in love, season your words with grace, but sometimes you have to speak. Last week, Pastor Jake told us that we, from the book of James, that we should put a bridle on our tongues. And for me, whenever I've thought about this text, that text, I was instructed by the sermon because it was great. You can find it online, icbcmw.org slash sermons. I've always thought, Andrew, you talk too much. You need to put a bridle on your tongue and pull the reins back and stop talking. And that is true a lot of the time. (laughs) But Pastor Jake reminded us that bridles are also used to make the tongue go the way they need to go. Here's what Pastor David said in our meeting to talk about this text. A bridle is not a muzzle or a gag. 
That's true. We use it to direct with a purpose. So, beloved, direct your tongues to stand up against false teaching. We'll see this next week when our friends and family and loved ones are, are head, headed to destruction. They're, they've been deceived and led astray by false teachers. We ought to say something. We say, well, Andrew, that's scary. I know. But the stakes are too high to stay quiet. Didn't you hear about the judgment that waits? Didn't you hear about the condemnation for the ungodly? May it not be so inside our churches. We've got to say something. Losing your amens, but it's okay. I'm still on track. Next week, Jude will give us more specific instructions. We'll learn like, what do you do? How do you do it? Next week, we'll learn that. Let me close with this. The same dangers that faced the early church still exist. We still face them today. There are many who sneak into churches and promote a false gospel. It is our responsibility as believers to avoid shipwrecking our faith on the hidden reefs or the shifting sandbars that Satan sneaks into our church. We'll see next week that it is also our responsibility to rescue others who are running aground on destructive false doctrine. Beloved, there is only one sure way to avoid running aground in the shallow waters of false gospels, and that is to steer your ship into the deep ocean of the gospel. Remember the Savior who rescued you from your slavery to sin and death. Take up the scriptures and read about what Christ has done. Remember the gospel. Meditate on it. Saturate your mind with gospel truth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to avoid dangerous, deceptive, and destructive false teaching. Beloved, find safety in the deep, deep waters of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness in your son and in your word. You've given us your self-disclosure here in this book that many of us hold in our laps this morning. Help us not to be enticed by clever speeches or fascinating dreams. Rather, help us to hold fast to the anchor of God's word. Protect us, Lord. Thank you for giving us elders. Part of their job is to, is to run off the wolves who are trying to sneak into the church and snatch the sheep. Thank you for them. Thank you that you've given us the word to be a plumb line so we can know what straight truth is. Thank you that you've given us the indwelling spirit so we can hear the encouragement to run from that teaching and run to the gospel. Help us to remember what you've done for us. Help us to meditate on your word. Help us to steer our ship into the deep waters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen.